this is a climate change with Matt Matter. I am Max Slope sitting in for Matt Matter. And today I'm speaking with Robert Meckelman of Wilfrid Laurier University's Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. Hello, Robert. Hi, Max. Uh, thanks for sitting in with us today. Um, wanted to talk with you about uh, several of the issues that that you research and that you speak on. And one of the things that I wanted to begin with is that when, when I look through some of your materials, uh, some of your writing, I, I love your word choice because the way that we talk about the environment, the way that we talk about things related to climate dynamics, um, the words we use have such a magnificent ripple effect in terms of the way we frame issues, the way we frame problems, the way we frame solutions. Um, way we frame policy. Um, so uh, starting with this, this, this question of, of the human dimensions of environmental change, this is, this is, this is a, a phrase of yours. And I, I want to begin with that and ask, I'll, I'll let you expound on, on what you mean by that, but I want to plant the seeds of a question. My question is, to what extent should humans be viewed through a dualistic versus a non-dualistic paradigm vis-a-vis -vis the environment? That is, to, to what extent is it accurate or helpful to see ourselves, humans, as separate from or a natural and integrated part of the greater environment? That is a wonderful question and a great way to start the interview. Um, so a few thoughts on this. One is that throughout the 20th century, especially the second half of the 20th century, people tended to take the approach that they were somehow separate from the natural environment and that the natural environment was something to be managed, to be modified, to be controlled. Uh, and uh, many of our policy choices, our scientific choices, the way we thought about the environment in the second half of the 20th century reflected that humans as apart from nature, not everyone and not everywhere, but that was sort of the the mainstream approach to things in academia, in policy, and so on. Um, and what I think what we're recognizing now in the 21st century is that that approach is part of what got us into many of the problems and challenges that we face right now with a changing climate, with biodiversity loss, with desertification and deforestation. It's because we've been treating the environment as something external to the human world, something to benefit us and to, to be managed much the way, say, a bank account might be a man, might be managed to, you know, benefit us in, in our day to day life. So when I use the term human dimensions of environmental change is the, the environment is changing. Part of its natural change, but a lot of it more recently is is driven by human factors. And so the human dimensions are really just recognizing that the impacts on us is they're only one set of challenges that we face and that when we cause biodiversity loss, whether it's in the United States or in a different corner of the world, there are consequences for, for nature, but also for ourselves. And so we need to take a holistic approach to identifying the roots of these challenges and then uh, a holistic approach to identifying uh, the responses. Because at the end of the day, when we talk about environmental challenges, many of the solutions pathways that are in front of us are good for us if they're good for nature and vice versa. And when we try to simply just solve it in the context of what's best for, for people, we, we tend not to have complete solutions. 
Yeah, I think that um, that ch- that touches on an issue that I I saw come up just just this week. Um, a, an article by that somehow crossed my desk saying that we we should just give up on the entire discourse on on the environment and climate change. Um, it was it was a well written article, but I, I didn't agree with the thesis. But it, but it did raise the question for me in terms of to what extent is our concern for the environment something romantic and nostalgic versus something pragmatic and functional? Um, I know for me it, it it tends to be a blend. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a romantic. Uh, I, I I do think there's something kind of painful about uh, a species. Um, or an ecosystem being degraded or going extinct or being lost or damaged because of human activity, um, that would be, I guess, my, my thought in terms of a, a nostalgic or romantic view of the environment. Um, but then, to, you know, to what extent uh, is working to protect uh, non-human elements of the environment something purely romantic and to what extent is it, is it like, like a pragmatic benefit to us? And, and must it always, do we always need that, that, that materialist connection between doing something that is perceived as positive and protective of the environment and a, a benefit, uh, a visible, tangible benefit to humans. And then I guess there's also like the question of what, what is the benefit to humans? Um, I, I feel like we, we, we see benefit through a very like specific lens right now in terms of the way our, our economy functions. Um, do, do, do you have any thoughts on, on kind of like that nostalgic romantic versus pragmatic self-interest distinction? Uh, you, were, you were starting to touch on that. I was wondering if you had some more to say on that. I think, Max, I come from a similar place that you do uh, in that there's a role for both. There's a role for romance and nostalgia, I suppose, solastalgia. And there's a role for hard-nosed pragmatism and self-interest in all of this. Um, a good example is is Rachel Carson uh, and the enduring legacy that she has had worldwide, not just in the United States and not just in environmental policy, but she helped shape the way generations that followed her think about the environment. Um, and if and if you've read any of her works, as I have, it's a good mix of practicality, pragmatism, self-interest, and romance, talking about the beauty of the, the natural world, the, the magical experience of going to the seashore and seeing the, the wondrous creatures that you find in a rock pool. Yet at the same time, you know, spelling out how we need to start regulating the chemical industry to make sure that certain uh, compounds are taken out of nature. So there's all of those elements in there. So there's a place for both. If we didn't have the romance and the the sheer joy and love of being part of nature, then essentially what we're talking about is bureaucratic decision-making. How do we maximize value? How do we implement policies to achieve, you know, specific ends? Um, and without the, the the love of nature and the romance uh, being attached to that decision-making process, we might as well be talking about, you know, changing the tax code or, you know, how do we, do we take the imperial measurement system over the metric system, right? These are very sterile decisions where we use basic, you know, maximization uh, calculations. But when we're talking about nature and how to uh, ensure that our children and our children's children uh, enjoy 
nature in the way that we have been fortunate enough to experience it, then we need to have that romance and those emotional uh, elements to the debate as well. Do, do we need to, to quantify that beauty? Do we need to put a number on it? Because so often the, the decision makers, the policy makers, um, cannot be broken out of that mold and, and will use romantic formulations and romantic framing of the environment against advocates of the, of the environment. They will, you know, you're just trying to protect that species in the desert for no real good reason other than just for its own sake and species go extinct all the time and what makes this one special. Um, you know, the, the, I, I've often been confronted with the accusation of, of over-romanticizing and it, it can be a very difficult accusation to respond to. Um, so is, is, is there a, a need or about, or a point in, in putting numbers on beauty um, as, as people engage in these conversations? I think you've, you've, you've raised a good point. And it, it is challenging for me too, coming from a person who, if you told me that the reason we should save this species is because we should save this species, because the species in itself has intrinsic value that can't be quantified. For me, I accept that argument and say, okay, let's try to save the species. But I recognize there are other people out there who give, like you say, the economic argument, which is, well, what's the economic value of doing that? Um, and so it is a challenge in communicating um, across these different um, approaches to viewing nature. One of the things I like to tell my students when I'm teaching and so on is that when we look at the big environmental treaties and international agreements that we have right now that came out of the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, so the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, biodiversity protection, uh, combating desertification, and so on, most of the Western leaders who were present at that conference and who signed off on those treaties were right-wing leaders were from the same parties today who like to talk about the economics of everything above all else, whether it's human values, natural values, and so on. So I think it's only a recent phenomena where this argument has become polarized between the value of nature and the value of money. Yeah, it, it is interesting and, um, and, and a bit ironic, I, I guess, depending on one's view that um, the uh, some of the great environmental laws domestically were passed under the Nixon administration and, um, and uh, sort of the, the conservative icon, Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Same in my uh, country. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I guess, you know, I, I, to, to a certain extent, we can try to connect dots and draw lines and, and um, in other ways we we can't invest too much in, in what the, where the political lines are drawn. Um, just need to sort of manage the conversation and push it forward one way or the other. Um, this is Max Sloves. I am sitting in for Matt Mattern on Climate Change with Matt Mattern, speaking today with Robert Meckelman of Wilfrid Laurie University's Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. Hello, 
Hello, this is a Climate Change with Matt Mattern. I am Max Slope, sitting in for Matt Mattern. Today, speaking with Robert Meckelman of Wilfrid Laurier University, the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. Robert, thank you again for joining today. Great to be here. Um, next topic I wanted to explore is it's kind of it's, it's 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 a hot button issue right now. I guess a, a lot of environmental issues can be framed as hot button issues. This one seems to be getting a lot of play. This week, uh, I've been hearing segments from NPR to New York Times, everyone on the issue of the environment and human migration. And uh, again, I am really intrigued by and appreciative of your word choice when you, in, in what, I, what I've seen of, of, of what you published in terms of using the word environment, which I think is a, is a broader term than, than climate. Climate change is the that's that's the, the hot sexy thing right now. You know, if you're trying to market a conversation, use climate change. But it seems to kind of overshadow the the broader issue of of the environment, which is something we've we've been discussing uh, as as a, a global community for for quite some time. And uh, there are issues related to the environment that don't necessarily fit cleanly into a discourse on climate change. Um, so the interaction of the environment and human migration, that, that just feels like, like the big one right now. So you know, what, what do you see as the key environmental dynamics um, now and moving forward, perhaps not just climate change, that, that affect human migration patterns? And what are some of the trickle-down effects that uh, you think we can anticipate from this? You're absolutely right. Uh, this is one of the big political policy social issues of our time right now is the fact that we have changed the natural environment so much that it is now starting to influence and affect our ability to live in certain ways in certain places around the world and that's growing uh, dramatically uh, just as one simple example uh, there's an organization called the internal displacement monitoring center based in geneva and they keep annual statistics on people who have to uh, move from their homes, who are involuntarily displaced for reasons related to conflicts, but also reasons related to what they call natural disasters. Uh, and those can be earthquakes and volcanoes, but the big drivers are three phenomena, um, floods, extreme storms, and then to a lesser extent, but still fairly significant, uh, droughts and wildfires. And on average, uh, over 20 million people each year are displaced from their homes by those weather events that I've just described. And that number has been growing, and it's expected to grow for a variety of reasons. Now, a lot of them are due directly to climate change. As we warm the planet, we increase the frequency and severity of storms. We change precipitation patterns. Um, there's a, one study that suggested that for every half degree of warming, we increase by 50% the risk that people will be displaced from their homes by floods. And so that's going on. That's sort of already happening. So it's not over the horizon. Second thing is we know where these events happen on a regular basis. So we can go around the world from, you know, Philippines, China, Vietnam, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, as we saw with the, the massive floods in Pakistan last year. Uh, and the United States actually routinely figures within the top 10 countries for people who are displaced for reasons related to natural disasters. And so these displacements are going to increase, as I said, in a changing climate. But there's other stuff that we're doing to the environment as well beyond climate change that also 
influences this. So, for example, uh, in our own hemisphere, uh, in Central America and in the Caribbean and Haiti, for example, we have widespread deforestation taking place uh, in many cases to create plantation style agriculture uh, or in some cases just because people are desperately poor and, and cutting down trees legally or not is one way to earn an income. And that in turn triggers, you know, unstable slopes, landslides, and and multiplies the risk of extreme events. Um, and it also affects, you know, food systems, which is also a big uh, challenge around the world. Uh, so all of this is interconnected. And, and it, it, it sounds like, oh, my goodness, like there's so much happening right now. But at the same time, we can sort of sort of reel it back in to the fact that economic decisions that we are making with respect to the use of resources, whether it's mining resources, whether it's fossil fuels, whether it's forests, are having implications, not just economic ones, but actually affecting people in many parts of the world, sometimes in our own country, and sometimes in other countries, uh, in terms of, you know, where they're moving to, or where they're able to live right now, and why. Can, can we, well, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, First, it, it, I know this is this is just a small fraction of the issue, but to, to what extent are are these migration phenomena triggered in part by humans investing themselves in areas where they shouldn't be? For example, you know, like, like dense population in floodplains, where historically they, people wouldn't settle because they they know there's a possibility of flooding. Um, or I know in California, there's, you know, there's, there's quite a, a, a policy debate over the need to build more homes, but then on the flip side saying, well, we, we can't keep building closer and closer into areas with, that are high fire risk. Um, it, it, is that a, like, would you put that as, as a large percentage of the issue or just like a, like kind of a small, like footnote um, in terms of, you know, Floods are something that happen, but but we we have done things to in terms of our patterns of, of settlement that, that that make them worse now. Is is that is that part of the is a significant part of the equation or or a smaller part of the equation? You're absolutely right. It's it's a big part of the equation. Um, that's one of the paradoxes that we're talking about in this changing climate is that not only are we increasing the risks, the environmental risk factors that force people to move from their homes. But at the same time, we have people uh, choosing to live in areas where they're highly exposed to environmental hazards, whether it's fires, whether it's uh, think of the whole state of Arizona, for example, in the, the Valley of the Sun. It's essentially it's a desert environment with millions of people uh, dependent upon fossil water deep in the ground and water uh, behind a dam that is, you know, hundreds of miles away and piped to them. Um, or living in South Florida um, in an area like Miami Beach, which, you know, with rising sea levels between 50 and 100 years from now will be underwater. And yet, at the same time, people are choosing voluntarily to want to live in those environments. And it's not just in the United States. It's just many parts of the world where we see that uh, population growth is highest in areas that are high risk. We can think of the city of Shanghai. We can think of the city of Dhaka City in, in Bangladesh, cities of tens of millions of people living at sea level. Uh, so that's a big part of the equation. Now, one of the things we've been able to do in North America over the years is to sort of use things like air conditioning and flood defenses and piping water over long distances and reservoirs to sort of overcome those environmental cha challenges 
to make places like Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona possible, to make uh, places like Miami Beach viable. Um, you know, without air conditioning, you probably wouldn't want to live 365 days a year in South Florida, but we're able to do that. But there's a, a, a hypothesis called the lessening hypothesis, which is not mine. It goes back to the 1980s to a, a researcher by the name of Warwick, who looked at droughts in the Great Plains, who said, one of the things that North Americans have been doing is by using all these technologies to allow themselves to live in areas that 100 years ago would not have been viable areas to build cities or, or have large numbers of people. Uh, we lessen the day-to-day -day risks of living those in those environments, but we magnify the risk of catastrophic failures of those communities when the water runs out, when the heat becomes unbearable, when the sea levels rise. So um, that's sort of, like I say, circling back to my original response, it, it is a paradox uh, and it is part and parcel of trying to, if we want to call it solving, uh, to solving the the environmental challenges of our time. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the word, the first word among many that you, you just used that really stood out to me is growth. Most, most of our economic systems, as I understand them, and I, I'm, I'm not an economist, uh, are based essentially on, on continuous models of growth or models of continuous growth. But I don't know of any ecological models that show continuous growth to be sustainable. Like, I, I, my, my recollection of, of sort of environmental studies 101 is that um, unchecked growth, you get this spike and collapse um, as opposed to um, plateaued growth that is more steady state. Um, can, is, do you think, and this is going to kind of uh, connect to our next segment, um, is it a zero sum game? You know, so the, the hypothesis you describe so that you can, you can, eliminate short-term risk, or I'm probably mis misquoting you here, but you can, you can um, mitigate short-term risk, but you are increasing catastrophic risk. Um, there's sort of this notion, there's, there's always a price to pay. Um, can we continue unchecked growth? Um, or is, is, is there a way to, to, to feed the, our, our, our economic system, the way it's designed, the way we rely, rely upon it, um, and in this way that has created much innovation and, and prosperity, um, while also balancing like absolutely necessary uh, environmental concerns, some of which may be intuitive, uh, some of which may blindside us. I, I think kind of what you described earlier, sort of a more blindsiding of uh, catastrophic we don't really think about the catastrophic risks that we don't see because they're not in front of us until they are and then sometimes it's too late i'd like to kind of circle back to that in our next segment um this is max slopes i'm speaking with robert meckelman of wilford laurie university's department of geography and environmental studies on climate change with matt matter and sitting in for matt matter today we'll be back in a moment Hello, this is Max Slobes. I'm sitting in for Matt Matter today on a climate change with Matt Matter, speaking with Robert McClemon of Wilfrid Laurier University's Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. Uh, Robert, we left off in the last segment. I was I was posing a pretty long and meandering question, um, 
and I, I began with with the issue of, of unchecked growth. It is unchecked, or or is no? Let's not say unchecked. Let's say continuous. Are models of continuous growth sustainable um, from an environmental perspective and from an economic perspective? Get, can you speak to that in, in, in any way? Because it's just, it's a question that, that plagues me and I, I don't always get answers that I find um, satisfying. <laughs> so it continues to plague me. Well, this, this goes back to a question we had in an earlier segment, which is, you know, what is the environment and what is the human role within that and so on. So in, in, in a simple sense is no, unlimited growth in the natural environment does not come without consequences. There are thresholds in nature, temperature thresholds, quantity, you know, of moisture. Uh, there's all kinds of thresholds built into nature. And if we as humans exceed those thresholds, there are consequences, right? When uh, a city runs out of water, the city ceases to function on that day. Um, when uh, the human body crosses a certain temperature threshold, it starts to shut down. It cannot function. Uh, so in that sense, any economic growth that is linked to natural processes or natural resources, if we want to call them that, there are built-in limits. And in some cases, we run into them, uh, and there are examples of those. But in terms of economic growth, wealth can be created, at least in my experience, in the absence of great impacts on the environment. So if we think about the the value of ideas um, and the the knowledge economy and um, you know the just it, we can think about a digital a digital economy where the only real natural input other than the humans that are involved in the process of creating the ideas is the electricity to keep the computers running and to keep the communication devices going. And if that can be generated in a renewable fashion, then in one sense, the knowledge-based economy, um, I suppose, could grow infinitely in, if, if the output is dollars or ideas or so on, if we measure it in those ways. But as soon as that economy transitions to, okay, now let's make widgets based on that knowledge, now the natural limits kick in. So like you, I'm not an economist, but at the same time, I can, uh, I can see how in this example, we might want to separate out the human world from the natural world um, in terms of how we value it. Because the, the, the thing that another issue that I've seen quite a bit of late, but especially this particular week, several articles and, and segments is on declining population in certain parts of the world. And it's, I think the, the default framing is that, um, decrease in population or decrease in reproductive rates of humans um, is problematic. And I, I, I'd like your opinion on that. Is, is, it, is, is that a necessarily bad thing? Or, I mean, at, at what point do we, do we hit, I believe the term used for a long time was carrying capacity. Um, there seemed to be like, it's kind of a malleable concept. What is the capacity of the earth to carry X number of humans? Um, at what point do we need to sort of embrace the notion of an asymptote there that that, that a, a capacity has been reached? Great question. And this is where the ecologists and the economists arm wrestle. 
uh, because, you know, from the ecological point of view, the ecologist point of view, we're probably beyond the carrying capacity of the Earth systems in many ways in terms of its ability to produce food and its ability to provide water and its ability to provide all kinds of resources to the human economy, at least given the way that we consume them and the, the often wasteful ways in which we consume them. So the ecologist might argue population shrinkage is a good thing uh, for people in general, but for, for you know, specific um, countries in particular. Um, conversely, an economist might say, but we, we need more people to do more work, to, you know, pay into pension plans, to pay taxes, to care for older people. Um, you know, what do you do if there's no young people to care for an increasingly elderly population and so on? Um, and many countries see continued population growth as the means to facilitate continued economic growth. And this is where I think nature may force the issue for us. Um, I, I don't want to sound too Malthusian because people who argue Malthusian arg arguments. So for people who don't know who Malthus is, he was, you know, 250 years ago, an Anglican clergyman in the UK who argued that human population numbers are inevitably checked by food shortages or disease or things like that. Um, and many people over, especially since the 1950s, have been arguing the Malthusian argument that the human population collapse is imminent because we're running out of resources and increase, you know, they're, they're inevitably incorrect. The human population keeps growing exponentially. Um, what I think will be the outcome here is, is two things. One is nature will impose limits, and it may be through climate change or other factors. But the other thing is that as women in particular become educated and eligible to enter the workforce, across the board, we see countries' population growth slows. And that's based on simple human rights and equality, that all people, regardless of race, color, gender, and so on, get equal opportunity. When you live in a society like that, population growth automatically slows. Uh, and we've seen that in North America, and it, it happens in other countries as well. So there's two things, I think, that can resolve this issue for us. One is, again, the limits of nature. But the other is, if we genuinely pursue equality and uh, social systems that are fairer to all people, then this, this, this challenge becomes resolved. Uh, so many, so many interesting and, and interlocking pieces um, in these uh, in, in these discussions and in, in these debates over how how things may plan, plan, play out and how they may not. Um, I, those those are some fascinating and provocative considerations. Um, I guess you got me thinking as well about you know what this whole. Malthusian notion um, got <laughs> the dark side of my psyche thinking about war that, um, you know, a, another issue, uh, Russia threatening to pull out of uh, the nuclear treaty, like the threat, like nuclear deterrence kind of, um, I feel like we, we, you could argue that, that it had positive and negative environmental impacts in terms of like removing catastrophic human destruction as a potential threat. But then on the flip side, um, yeah, war of any sort in, in the modern era is, is environmentally fantastically destructive. Um, I, I'm just thinking out loud right now. It, it's really interesting. Um, and it, it, it dovetails into uh, the next issue I want to get into, which is, again, I like your word choice, 
adaptation to climatic variability and change. I find that, speaking of war, we, we are so enamored with this bellicose language, um, militarizing the way we talk about things. We're going to fight climate change. We're going to battle climate change like, like the greatest generation. We're going to mobilize and unite and defeat fascism or, or climate change. Um, and, and that's not to, to denigrate the use of the, that terminology, but do we risk missing the mark a bit when we default to that vocabulary? I think there's what you describe is is the is a factual reality is that climate change, environmental change writ large is already happening. Uh, and so we're going to have to adapt as we go along to the fact that we've disrupted the climate and it will have consequences for ourselves, while at the same time, uh, yeah, I suppose fighting climate change, although scientists like to use the term mitigation, which is uh, essentially reducing greenhouse gas emissions, because that's really the fight in all of this is that we have to fight our own desire to continue consuming massive quantities of fossil fuels. Um, and I say desire because we're at the point in, in history where alternative energy technologies are as cost-effective or more cost-effective than fossil fuels. So in one sense, fossil fuels are now becoming the alternatives, whereas solar and wind and geothermal and heat pumps and tidal power and hydroelectric and so on, these are these should be the mainstream technologies. So um, so the language is important, I think. It, if, if fighting climate change, using those words, galvanizes people to do something, then, then I'm all for using those words. But um, I'm, I'm also cognizant that people get tired of fights very quickly um, and want to go into the phase of what happens after the fight. And, and the reality is that with climate change, this isn't a fight that's going to be won tomorrow or the next day or even five or 10 years from now. It's a continuous struggle against our own economic impulses. So maybe the vocabulary is important um, and we do need to adapt. Um, and, and that's a, that's a biological term adaptation, right? And that's sort of in the, the whole Darwinian idea of, that's how the human species became or came into the position that it is right now. We've been continually adapting through behaviors physically, and we're at a point where we're at a point where we are able to change the very fabric of the planet itself. So now we have to the next stage stage in adaptation is to fight against our own continued urge to consume things and consume material, consume resources and grow the economy indefinitely and to focus more on quality of life issues. And what does it mean to be alive, to be alive well, and to enjoy being alive? I think that's where we need to be. I, I, I love that. I love that it, that it gets tied together with, with such a, a, a profound meditative introspective and, and ex, existential question um, that that's, that's fodder for an entire other segment. Um, this is Max Sloves. I'm speaking with Robert McClemon of Wilfrid Laurie University's Department of Geography and Environmental Studies on Climate Change with Matt Matter, and we'll be back in a moment. This is Max Slopes sitting in for Matt Mattern on a climate change with Matt Mattern. 
speaking today with Robert McLemon of Wilfrid Laurier University's Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. Uh, Robert, I've mentioned several times during our conversation that I, I really appreciate your word choice, the way you use words very specifically uh, to convey certain, to describe certain concepts, um, to convey certain thoughts, and, and to frame things in, in, in a way that I, I, I personally at least find very responsible and helpful. And I noticed that when you talk about um, citizen involvement in environmental issues, you say citizen participation in environmental science. And I think that that particular phrase is really interesting to me because we so often find ourselves framing citizen engagement in terms of policy, marketing, consumption. And, and sometimes it gets boiled down to a very like superficial level, like buy this thing to be more environmental or buy this to fight climate change or donate here, donate there. Um, and I'm not trying to downplay any of those things, but um, when, when you talk about citizen participation in environmental science, um, what are some of the things that, that you are interested in promoting? I think one of the things that I've always wrestled with in my career as an environmental scientist is how do I make the things that I do on a daily basis and that I care about very much and very deeply, how do I make those things accessible to the person who is in a drive through line uh, in a minivan full of kids, getting them some takeaway food before taking them to practice of some sort? Um, because let's face it, most people don't live in the privileged world that I do, where I get paid a decent salary to sit around and ruminate over these big ideas and to do uh, research. Um, and so uh, taking, for example, the impacts of climate change in the popular media, when we give examples of how the world is changing, often they come down to things that the average person in the drive through line doesn't connect to. So polar bears are losing their habitat. Uh, glaciers are disappearing from Glacier National Park. Um, you know, small island states in the Pacific will soon disappear under a meter of water. Um, when people hear that, it's not that they don't have any empathy for the folks who or the, the things that we're talking about, but the examples are not accessible. Most, your average American is never going to see a polar bear in the wild. They're not going to visit Glacier National Park. They will never get to Tahiti in their lifetime. So what we need to do as scientists is make the research accessible and understandable. So an example of this is a decade ago, I started a simple citizen science project with a colleague named Colin, Colin Robertson, where we invited people who have outdoor skating rinks in their backyards to come onto our website that we call Rink Watch, to pin the location of their rink on our interactive map, and then throughout the winter, give us uh, updates on the skating conditions on their skating rinks. Now, I realize this example might not be accessible to somebody in Miami or Phoenix, but, but trust us when we say up here in Canada and in the northern parts of the United States, skating outside is a big part of winter. I, I'm sitting in Los Angeles, and I, I, I just have to remind myself that you are in Canada, where there, what you just said is not at all strange. Yes, exactly. It's snowing outside my window right now. Although this winter has been a terrible winter for building outdoor skating rinks, because the temperatures have been yo-yoing up and down above freezing, below freezing. And so essentially from an area east of Chicago all the way to the Atlantic Ocean has been very, very difficult for people to build an outdoor skating rink. And the ponds that people skate on, the ice hasn't been safe. 
And so this is an example of how climate variability and climate change affects people literally in their own backyards. And so what we've been able to do with a decade of data submitted by citizen volunteers who love outdoor skating, take that data. We've identified critical temperature thresholds that are essential for building an outdoor skating rink. And then we can go back into the past and go through historical weather records, reconstruct what skating seasons would have been like 50 or 75 years ago and cast into the future uh, to see whether or not we will be able to build skating rinks 50 or 75 years from now. Uh, and what we are able to document is that winters are becoming shorter. They're becoming milder. And when people in their 60s and 70s in places like Chicago or Minneapolis or Toronto, when they think back to their childhood and think, I think winter used to be longer and colder and snowier when I was a kid, we can show that they're not imagining that. Winters really are becoming shorter and milder because of climate change. And that if we do nothing about greenhouse gas emissions, the ability to build an outdoor skating rink in a place like Chicago or Minneapolis will disappear. And now we've got an example that the person in the drive through line can understand. Oh, okay, this is something I stand to lose if we continue on the path we're on with climate change. And so what we need to do as scientists is to come up with a myriad of these types of examples that everybody in every community can connect with. And if they do feel like they have something at stake, there's something in the game for them, then maybe it incentivizes them to do more than simply buy the you know, eco-friendly detergent at the grocery store or the you know, fair trade chocolate bar. Maybe it pushes them to do the next step, which is to become more of an advocate for the environment, to speak to the next person who knocks on their door asking for their vote in an election to say, actually, I'm really concerned about the environment. What are you going to do about it? Right. That's the, the next step we want people to take. I, I think that's that's a phenomenal project because it. One of the issues I've had with climate change as a discourse versus the environment as a discourse is that, um, you know, at least in a large urban area, it's pretty easy to drill down to a local level uh, to connect to the environment, um, especially if there's some sort of industrial activity in an area. Um, the effects on the environment are very tangible. There are parts of Los Angeles where people grow up with asthma because the air pollution from oil refineries is really bad. Um, if you don't live near them, you can at least see them and point to them. Um, when you get to the scale of climate, it can be easy to tell ourselves that we care, but very difficult to you know, point to the climate. <laughs> Show me the climate. Um, you point to the temperature, you point, you know, it just, it, it can get a little, I think it gets more amorphous in people's minds than they want to admit. Um, and that makes response and action more difficult. So this notion of putting it in terms of, you know, providing something you can point, point to that ice rink, uh, that and, and, and track it over time. I think that's, that's a, a really fantastic example of of a way to bring this large over this global phenomenon to the local level um, in ways people can relate to i mean relatability is so important um and, and on that note of, of relatability uh 
you know, if you're always fighting a losing battle, it can become so demoralizing. Um, so that sometimes you need even just a small victory, if not a grand one. I, where, when you look around right now, where do you see where do you see progress being made? Where do you see even small victories being won in terms of approaching the environment, um, whether it be climate issues or otherwise, in in, in ways that um, that that are going to be that, that you think will be beneficial to uh, communities. I think there's three areas I see this in. One is there has been amazing technological process made uh, in providing climate-friendly solutions uh, to basic problems like heating or cooling your home, transportation, you know, getting around in a car or public transit and so on. Technologies that 20 or 30 years ago were, you know, just concepts are now things that people can actually uh, adopt at their own home, assuming that they, you know, they have the the money to do so and, and that they own their own home. But the point being is that technology has made great advances. It's becoming accessible. Second thing is uh, we're having podcasts like this right now where we're talking deep thoughts about the environment, um, communications, technology, social media, and so on. Um, can be used in a variety of different ways. Uh, it can be used to share photos, to shame people, to uh, do all kinds of things that are are not constructive, but it can also be used in a constructive sense. And so having these discussions, and hopefully people will actually hear them, uh, it's an opportunity that didn't exist when I was a kid um, growing up in the 70s and 80s. These conversations were held by experts in newspapers or, or journals and so on. And the third thing is youth. I have great confidence in, in today's youth. Um, I teach first-year environmental studies at my university and have done so for, for years. I've always taught first-year environmental studies. And enrollment in that course continues to grow, not just at my university, but all across North America and around the world, because young people do recognize that their future is at stake and they want to equip themselves with the tools and the knowledge to do something about it, even if it's not deliberate and proactive, but just to incorporate it within, you know, the whether they become accountants or, or uh, nurses or what have you, they're still interested in how the environment influences their future and how they can influence the, the environment in the future. So I have great confidence in those three things. Um, they're probably, you know, those youth probably aren't listening to this podcast, but that's okay. Um, you know, we'll reach them in different ways, whether it's the classroom, whether it's through TikTok or other social media. So those are my three sort of three of many ways that I think we can be optimistic. I, I appreciate that. I, I think it's a great note to end on too, because we live in a world that very easily can default to cynicism. It's so easy to be cynical, um, so easy to wag our finger, but so much more fun to give high fives. Um, I, not to sound too cheesy, but I would definitely like to high five this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I'm really glad that um, environmental studies is, uh, is, a, is a thriving discipline in academia. Um, it's something that was very beneficial to me when, when I was an undergrad and, uh, and I, I, I think your, your students are fortunate to, to have you uh, continuing to, to lead that path. Um, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been Climate Change with Matt Mattern. I'm Max Slope sitting in for Matt today and uh, wish you all the best.